For those that are remaining in the auditorium or who are watching online, head on over, if you would, to the book of Romans and chapter 8. And it is our intention this morning to work through verses 31 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Before we get there, though, I want to play a little game called Spot the Passage That Has Been Misunderstood and Misapplied. And there are at least three in our passage before us this morning, and I want to start with one from last week. We mentioned it, but I just wanted to reiterate it. Here's a good rule for life, and certainly an excellent rule to keep in mind as you read Scripture. It's not about you. Life is not about you, and the Bible is not about you. We, since the dawn of time want to make everything about us. And scripture is not about us, but we want to make it about us. And you'll note that in the passages that we have before us, the selfishness that comes when we attempt to make scripture about us. And so if you would turn back over to verse 28 from chapter 8. And as we mentioned last Sunday, I want to reiterate, this is definitely a misunderstood misheard and misapplied verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And the issue lies in that we want to define what good is. And inevitably and invariably, we translate that as what we mean as being good. Our desires, the things that we want, and when we want them. And so we read that verse out of context, make it about us, which is what we are always prone to do. And we say, so if I love God, then everything in my life is working towards him making my life the way that I think it should be. And nothing could be further from the truth. And that's a gross misunderstanding and therefore uh, a very incorrect misapplying of that verse. What is the good? He says what the good is in that verse. According to whose purpose? His purpose, not our purpose. And then he goes on to say that those whom he foreknew, those who he knew and chose beforehand, he predestined that they would become like Jesus. What is the good? The good is us becoming more like Christ. That's the good. It's not that it's some sort of um, blanket promise, blank check that God writes to us and says, hey, listen, whatever you think is best for you, just let me know and I'll do that. That would be awful and horrible and not at all what we would actually want nor need. And so be careful. And now we come to our passage before us. Before we dive in, I want us to look at a few more verses just to highlight them. Verse 31 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? And we mishear, misunderstand, and misapply verse 31 in at least two ways because it is a misunderstanding of at least two of the words in that passage. The first word is the word for. And once again, viewing that verse through the lens of us and making it about us, 
We believe that that means that God is for us, which means whatever uh, harebrained schemes we come up with, whatever cocky many ideas that we construct, God will get on board with those. That God is a genie. He's in a lamp that we get when we become a Christian. We rub that lamp and he pops out to say, what can I do for you today? Because he's for us. He gets behind our ideas. He helps empower and make possible our desires. And that is not at all what that verse means. God is for us in the sense that he's no longer against us as our judge. He was against us because his disposition is is against sin. That's what his wrath is. It's a settled stance against sin. And since we are sinners, he is against us. Not that he has a perverse delight in thwarting our happiness, but quite literally and at a much deeper level, he stands opposed to us because we are sinners. James that we read there in the confession part of our liturgy says that God opposes the proud. He stands in opposition to those who think that they're God because they're not. He is. And his opposition, again, is not that God is up in heaven with a big hammer and he delights in smiting people. He actually, out of love, opposes those who believe that they are God and not him. He stands against those that are sinners. Because God is justice, he is against injustice. Because God is love, he is opposed to hatred. Because God does forgive through Christ by the Spirit, he is opposed to grudge holding and bitterness. God is not for us in the sense that we write up a a, a sort of a a, a five-year plan. Here are some goals that I have. And hey, God's for me. That's not what that verse means. It's not about you. It's about him. But we also then (laughs) misunderstand, mishear, and therefore misapply the word us. Okay? We make the us, us. And in particular, this is what cult leaders will do when they use this scripture to say, but God is for us. He's not for them. Because they don't believe like we do. They don't practice things like like we do. They don't follow me, all right, the way that everyone should. And so God is for us and he's not for them. And again, we individualize God as if God is ours and no one else's. And this is not what it means that God is for us either. It means he is for those whom he has chosen. He is for his children. He is for those whom he has foreloved. The us is everyone that God has chosen, not the ones that we have chosen. Us two and not you, us three and not thee. That that is how this verse has been grossly misinterpreted and manipulatively applied, and that's not what this verse means. Notice verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This verse has been radically misheard, misunderstood, and misapplied by the health and wealth proponents, by those in the prosperity. I don't even want to deem it to say it's a gospel. It's not the gospel at all. It's the opposite of the gospel, that if God gave you Jesus, which is his best, why wouldn't he give you that brand new car? And why wouldn't he fill up your bank account with lots of money? And why wouldn't he give you that private jet? That is not at all what this verse is talking about. In particular, and specifically, is talking about all the things that pertain to our salvation. 
And we'll get there in just a moment. And then notice verse 37. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And again, we make it about us. So we have a plan, whether that's individually, collectively as a family or corporately as a church. And since God is for us, we are more than conquerors. So our plan will come to, pl- come to pass. This verse is not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. We are more than conquerors in the sense that we can make it through the present circumstances because of the future reality. He is moving us towards Christ's likeness. He has declared us righteous justification. He is removing from us the power of sin. He is making us practically righteous in the here and now and will one day make us completely righteous glorification. In that way, despite the things that are currently happening in our lives, we can hang on to the truth that if we are in Christ, he has a plan for us that does not typically include our comfort, but instead includes all the things that we struggle and wrestle with so that he can remove from us idolatry to make us more like him, a plan that he will uh, make good on. It will come to pass. So now that we have played this game of, can you spot the passage that has been misunderstood? Let's dive into the text. I had initially titled this sermon, Conquerors, based on verse 37. And yet as I continued through my studying and preparation for this morning, I realized I needed to remove the S because the S makes it about us. The lack of the S makes it about him. And this passage, as all passages of scripture, as all of life are about God, they're not about us. And so I've titled this sermon, Conqueror, and we see that God has conquered. In the first place, we see that God's grace has conquered sin. Notice verse 31. God is for us. What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He is not talking about the plans that we have. He's not talking about our group. He is not referencing our political opinions and position. He's not talking about our tribe. As mentioned before, he's talking about his stance towards us, his relationship with us. He is not in the business of giving us all the things that we want. He is patiently, graciously, and consistently giving us all that we need because he is for us as it relates to our salvation and bringing us all the way home. He is no longer against us in the sense that he does not stand in settled opposition to our sin and our rebellion and our pride. God is for us in the sense that he is now our father and no longer our judge. And Paul explains that as he goes through 32 through 34, using legal language in this passage. This was what it means. That before salvation, we stood before God as judge. He is our creator. He has given us life. We owe him. We owe him allegiance. We owe him to be as he created us to be. And we do not do that. And so as our judge, we are rightly condemned before him. But through Christ, by the spirit, we can be made righteous. So that Jesus Christ took the penalty for our sin on himself and gives us in return his righteousness. 
God then is not against us. He is for us, not in the sense that he delights in making sure that all of our plans come to pass, but he finds the most delight in making sure that his plan and purpose comes to pass, which is the best for us. This is the way in which God is for us. So please bear that in mind coming off of last Sunday's sermon as we move into the last part of this Sunday's sermon. Your present circumstance may seem to contradict this, but it does not. God, if you are his, is never against you. He is never against his children. He's never against his servants. He is for them in that everything without fail that happens in our lives happens at his good and graciously sovereign hand for our benefit, to make us more like Christ. His plan for his own son was crucifixion. And since the servants are not greater than the master, his plan for us is not a life of ease and comfort. But his plan for us is to continually and consistently bring us to a place where he is all we have to continually and consistently remind us that he is all we need. In this way, God is for us. Number two, God gave his son for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God gave us his best. He gave himself. Jesus Christ, the righteous, willingly became one of us, went to the cross and bore the penalty for sin in his own body on the tree rose again to life from the dead triumphantly in the resurrection, which we celebrate every Sunday, resurrection day. And now, as Paul's going to tell us in verse 34, is seated at the right hand of God, ever interceding for us, revealing that his righteousness is ours and the penalty for sin has been paid in full by him. God gave us his own son. And God will then save us completely. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? A new car? A cottage, a new fifth wheel, that cruise, once we can do that sort of thing again, is this all things? Read scripture in context and read it with the knowledge that it's never about you. What are the all things? All things that pertain to our salvation. Do you believe that if God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ, that he left any of that wrath for you? Do you believe that God paid your penalty in full? Do you believe that God who declared you righteous and justified you daily is sanctifying you, setting you apart and making you more righteous so that you resist the power of sin will one day also glorify you, removing from you the presence of sin? Do you believe that he will not only begin a good work in you, but that he will complete it in the end, that he will hold you fast and bring you all the way home? If God gave you Jesus Christ the best that he had, why would he withhold anything that pertains to your glorification, your sanctification and your justification? Why would he hold anything back? Not even you can mess this up. Thanks be to God. In the fourth place, we see that God through Christ declares us righteous. 
Who will bring any charge against God's elected is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. God is the one who has declared us righteous if we are in him. He is the creator and he is the judge of all the earth. So it does not matter what anybody else's opinion is of us. What matters is, are we rightly related to the one who made us? And if we are in Christ, then God has said they're mine. They are forgiven. They are loved. And they are fully free. If God has declared us righteous, who can possibly declare us unrighteous? If Christ is the one who died, and notice in quick succession, Paul gives us four things that he did. He died for us. He bore the penalty of death. The wages, Paul has said, of sin in 623 is death. More than that, then the second place, he was raised. He conquered death, proving that death was paid for, that the penalty was paid. Thirdly, who is at the right hand of God, right next to his father. Fourthly, who is indeed interceding for us. All of this, Jesus Christ the righteous, has done on our behalf for us. Therefore, in the fifth place, no one can accuse or condemn us. Paul asks his audience in Rome, so who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? The ones that God chose before he ever created anything. Who's going to stand up and accuse them of unrighteousness? How can God who has, God who has declared them righteous change his mind? Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. John says we oftentimes accuse ourselves. Even our own consciences accuse us. And yet the reality is that if God has declared you righteous in Jesus Christ by the Spirit, then you are righteous in Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And no one, not Satan, not those that call you a hypocrite, and we all are, and not even your own conscience can bring a charge against the ones that God has chosen before the dawn of time. And who is there to condemn Christ Jesus is at God's right hand, displaying the scars in his wrist and his feet. Who is there that's going to condemn us when the one who is condemned for us stands at God's right hand? There is no one that can accuse or condemn. And Paul ends here, bookends here, what he started in 8.1, where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No one can accuse or condemn us. And does any of this have anything to do with us? Not any of it. It's all a work of him. God's grace has conquered sin. And so we see in the second place then that God's love conquers all. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I think sometimes we may believe that God begrudgingly saved us. That he loves us, but he doesn't like us very much. That we're his children but we're a bit of a skyvy lot and he's not all that really proud of his kids. And yet Paul has said in the negative, what about our sin? God has taken care of all of that on Jesus Christ. In the positive then, oh, how he loves us. Who can separate us from God's love? God's love will always bring us through. Paul mentions a number of things here. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, actual persecution or famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword. There are times when our present lived experience does not seem to match the truth that we know. But as we continually say, we must believe in the truth, especially when our experience does not seem to match it. We live in a society that elevates experience. Experience reigns supreme. And yet as believers in truth, we must always hold to the fact that truth must reign supreme. Paul has experienced six of these seven things and will experience the seventh. He had experienced tribulation. He had experienced distress. He had experienced persecution. At least twice during his preaching ministry, people tried to kill him. One time they succeeded in throwing stones at him until they left him for dead. And after this is written, as he goes to Jerusalem and then goes back to Rome, not the way that he thought he would, in chains instead of as a free man, there are those that take a vow of hunger, a hunger strike until he's dead. We don't know what happened to those guys because Paul didn't die. He experienced famine in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. A large part of what Paul is doing as he goes around on these different missionary journeys is collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem who are experiencing famine. Nakedness here is not uh, anything lewd. It has to do with poverty, to be so poor that you do not even have clothing. Paul knows that. He says, I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. And danger, Paul lived in danger a lot. And the sword here is execution. And Paul will be executed because of his ministry of the gospel. Are any of these things proof against God's love for us? No. No. But in all of these things, we are confident of God's love for us. Do not view any of these realities as contradicting the fact that God loves you. But in fact, rest in his presence in those things and understand that he is in those things, using those things to make you more like his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything that happens in your life if you are a child of God, has meaning and purpose and significance because it all comes at his good, graciously sovereign hand for his glory and for your benefit to make you more like Christ. Which leads then to verse 36, that God's gracious sovereignty never ends. He quotes Psalm 44, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What a lovely verse to encourage yourself today and every day. Cross-stitch that one, put it on your wall, invite people into your home. This is a lovely, what a heartwarming verse. Yes, life's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about God's glory. And Paul quotes this Psalm not to get us down, but to lift us up. Don't forget who you are. And don't forget by whose hand things happen in your life. And do not forget the one who has a purpose for your life, which is that you would become like Jesus Christ. This momentary affliction that he talks about in verse 18? Yes. Is that hard? Yes. Is it the last word? Never. 
We are not individuals that are known for or ought to be known for comfort and the things of this life. Those hardships that we endure should not be surprises. They ought to be expected. We're not from here. We're from a city whose builder and maker is God. Do you feel uncomfortable here? (laughs) You should, because you're not from here if you are in Christ. And so every day, we bear in our flesh the realities that everything about us now runs counter to what we find around us. So Paul says, do not be surprised nor doubt the love of God in these tribulations. These are evidences of God's love and presence. Verse 37, God's perfect will sustains us. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul coins a term not known in the Greek of that time, super conquerors, super victors because of Christ who loved us. Not that somehow because of Jesus, everything we ever wanted in life now becomes ours. Because if we're in Christ, we ought not to want the things of this life. We know that God has so much more in store for us in the life to come. God's perfect will sustains us. We are conquerors not in the sense that God makes our plans come to pass, but in the settled reality that God always makes his plans come to pass. What is God's plan for your life? His plan for your life as a believer in him, as a child of his, is to make you more like his son, our Lord and Savior and elder brother, Jesus Christ. So the fact that we're killed all the day long, the fact that we're like sheep to be slaughtered, the fact that we go through tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, do any of these things negate God's love for us? Do any of these things contradict God's perfect will for us? No. Because nothing can stop God's plan in our life. And it leads to the final point where Paul says, God's love for us never ends. For I am sure that neither death nor life, there's a number of pairings here. The end of life or life itself, nothing outside of this life or in this life, nor angels, nor rulers, the powerful angelic beings that he references in Ephesians 6 and other places, nor things present, nor things to come, not the past or our present circumstances or our future circumstances. These things cannot separate us from the love of God, nor powers, probably referencing, again, angelic hosts or demonic hosts, nor height, nor depth, and there's some discussions of what Paul means here, He might be referencing Psalm 139, the highest heavens and the lowest lows of Sheol. It seems to me to just to be at all encompassing terms, no matter where you are at in the universe, nor anything else in all creation. And by the way, not even you will be able to separate us in the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul bursts out in this praise as he will in other places. It's like he can't help himself. Christians at Rome, And 2,000 years later, Christians in Charlottetown, PEI, 
I am sure, Paul says, that none of these things, none of these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love conquers all. He is making you into the likeness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will hold you fast and he will bring you all the way home. Nothing in this life, nothing in the future, no other powers beyond our ability to see and interact with, and not even you yourself can remove yourself from his love. He loves you with an everlasting love and he will make you ones that he has justified and sanctified. He will make you glorified. That is a promise of God. And since God is God, that is going to happen. I'd like to close with a little bit of a historical vignette. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, is brought before the Roman emperor. When Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor, the Roman emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. Chrysostom replied, Thou canst not banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will slay thee, said the emperor. Nay, thou canst not, said the noble champion of the faith, for my life is hid with Christ and God. I will take away thy treasures. Nay, but thou canst not, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive thee away from man and thou shalt have no friend left. Nay, thou canst not, for I have a friend in heaven from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee, for there is nothing thou canst do to hurt me. This is the reality of those who are in Christ. There is nothing of this world or beyond this world that can separate us from the reality that if we are God's, we will remain his. He has a purpose for us, which is to make us like Jesus Christ, a purpose he will accomplish. So whatever we're going through, COVID or mass shootings or cancer or whatever it may be, the loss of a loved one, whatever is our present reality, none of that present reality speaks against the fact that God loves us. It all reminds us that he loves us, is present with us in that, and is holding us fast to himself and will bring us all the way home. The one who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these promises from your word, none of which are about us and how grossly we twist them when we lessen them by making them about us, making them about this life and, and selfishly looking to the finite instead of glorying in the infinite. Father, none of this is about this life, the temporal things, this is about the eternal. Father, may we be confident this morning that whatever our present circumstances, you are with us, you are for us, and you are working all of those things according to your perfect will and because of your amazing love so that we would become more like you, more individuals marked by compassion and truth, and righteousness, and holiness, and humility, and mercy, and grace, and kindness, and forgiveness, and truth, and love. Father, you will, in love, remove from us our idols. 
you will continually and consistently bring us to the place where you are all we have to remind us that you are all that we need. Father, thank you for this kind of love that is not short-sighted, but sees the eternal picture. That is not selfish, but sees the bigger picture. That is not hampered by anything because you are God and God alone. Thank you that everything in our lives has meaning and purpose and significance if we are yours because all of it is by your good and graciously sovereign hand for the making of us like you, which brings you glory. Father, thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. You are at work. You have declared us righteous. You are making us more righteous every day. And one day, we will be fully righteous. We will be like you, for we will see you as you are. God, help us to look forward to that day and to invite everyone we know into it. Because, Father, if you can save us, there is no soul beyond your, redeem, your redeeming power. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.